everybody. Um, welcome to Wednesday Night Church. Um, I'm Tiffany Gustafson. Um, I, as Pastor Met said, I am an attorney. I've been an attorney for about 15 years. Um, my job right now is I'm a stay-at-home mom, and I've been doing that for a while. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, but before becoming a stay-at-home mom, I was a prosecuting attorney. So the majority of my career was spent in this book, in the Constitution, um, studying the Constitution, reading how the courts have interpreted or in other words, uh, eroded the Constitution and how the Constitution applies to our life today, okay? And so um, let's open up in a word of prayer and then we can get started. Lord Jesus, we just thank you so much, God, for your brethren. We thank you, God, for your house. We thank you that we can gather as your people, Lord, to give you all glory and all praise. I just pray that you're here with us, Holy Spirit. Inspire the words in me so that I give you all glory. We lift you up. We glorify your name and prepare our hearts to receive what you have for us today. We love you, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen. Um, so as Pastor Matt alluded to, we are absolutely under attack as Christians. Our religious freedoms are under attack in a way that America has never seen before. And so that's why we're spending this time to talk about what our rights are. I'm going to focus specifically over the next three weeks on our um, First Amendment free speech rights, our First Amendment um, religious liberties rights, our equal protection rights as Christians, and um, our Second Amendment rights. And so... <laughs> okay, guys. And so, and okay. <laughs> and so, anyway, um, we are in a very unique situation here as American Christians because we have a mechanism. God has blessed us and shown us favor by giving us a mechanism to fight against the attacks that the enemy is doing in government. We are in a spiritual war. This is not a political discussion. This is a spiritual discussion. We are in a spiritual war and the enemy has always used government to try and slow down the spread of the gospel. And today is no different. And so, but we have something. We have a mechanism that the Lord has blessed us with, the Constitution of the United States. And this is the tool that we have to fight against the enemy in government. But you got to know what it says, okay? And so that's what we're here to do. So the first question, I just talked about defying the government, right? I'm saying that this document gives us the authority to defy the government. So I'm going to spend a little bit of time talking about, do we have authority to defy the government? Absolutely, we do. We have authority both biblically and legally. I'm going to talk about our legal authority. If you have questions about the biblical authority, you can talk to our, the elders of our church and the pastors. I am going to point you to some scripture, so then that way, on your own time, you can read that just to make sure that you understand we do indeed have that authority. First, in Exodus 1, when the Israelite midwives uh, defied a direct order from the Pharaoh. Next, in Daniel chapters 3 and 6, when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and then Daniel, defied a direct edict from King Nebuchadnezzar. And then in the New Testament, we have in Acts 4, where John and Peter were told by the Roman leaders to stop preaching the gospel, and they, they said, no, we're not going to stop preaching the gospel. So now let's get into the legal authority, okay? So from where do we get the legal authority to defy the government that governs us? Well, from uh, the documents that founded our nation. Those are called the founding documents, okay? I'm going to spend a little bit of time going over that only because a lot of people shared with me that they never learned that in school. And so it's really important that everybody here, actually it's important everyone in our country, has a working knowledge of what are the founding documents. The reason we need a working knowledge of that and to understand what that is, is because if you understand what founded our nation, then you'll see how 
adhering to the principles of our nation allow us to further preach the gospel. Does that make sense? So I'm really quickly going to go through this. Um, Our founding documents are the Federalist Papers, the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, and the Bill of Rights. I'm not going to get into what a Federalist Papers are, because that's really pertinent to here. But the Declaration of Independence that was written in 1776, that was when the 13 colonies came together and declared um, independence from the crown. And so the Revolutionary War ensued. That was from 1775 until 1783. After that, we gained our independence. Praise God. That's why we're all here today. Um, we were a free nation, but we were not a united nation yet. We didn't become a united nation until 1789 when the Constitution was written. Why was the Constitution written? To create a unified government. The Constitution first, everybody always talks about the Constitution's all about our freedoms. Not originally. The Constitution established a federal government and a federal military. And we'll get into why that matters when we start talking about Second Amendment in three weeks. But the federal, but the Constitution established a federal government so now we're a united nation instead of instead of 13 independent states we are a state united by a centralized government that governs all of us okay but then what happened shortly thereafter just three years later the same founding forefathers who wrote our constitution realized well wait a minute now we have this federal government what's to stop the federal government from having too much power What's to stop the federal government from becoming tyrannical just as the king was? What is to stop the federal government from from interfering upon our religious liberties just as the king did? And so that's why our founding forefathers um, wrote the Bill of Rights. And that became ratified three years after the Constitution in 1791. And so the Bill of Rights became ratified into the Constitution. It's the first 10 amendments to the Constitution. So that's now referred to as the Constitution, okay? The reason we need to know that is because if you understand the purpose behind the Constitution, then you will see how we can use that to further the kingdom of God, okay? So the purpose is summed up pretty much by the title of this class. We are one nation under God, a people governed by the creator, not the created. The original fathers of our nation intended for us to recognize that we were created by the almighty God and we are to be governed by the almighty God, not the almighty government. And that is the principle that we need to adhere to still today. And so the constitution, if you could please put up the... um, purposes slide. So essentially the purpose of the constitution is to recognize number one, all men are created equal. Number two, we are all created by God and we are God, we have rights given to us by God that are inalienable. Inalienable means nobody can take them away. Another individual can't take them away and the government can't take them away. And so those rights are the rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And so everything in the bill of rights furthers our right to life our right to liberty, and our right to pursue happiness. And we'll get into more of that later. And then the final purpose for the Constitution is to establish and solidify that we are, that we do not get our powers from government. The government gets its powers from us. We are supposed to decide what authority we give the government. And that seems shocking because right now the government is telling us where we can go, what we have to wear when we go there. The government is regulating everything that we do when it's supposed to be us telling the government what they're allowed to tell us to do. And so we need to 
adhere to this. We need to go back to this. And this is why voting matters. And voting doesn't matter. Informed voting matters. You need to, you need to know who you're voting for and you need to vote for candidates that will defend our constitution. Okay. So I know. We are not of this world. We say that all the time. And we should not be living as though we're of this world. Um, we have a place in the heavenly kingdom, and that is where our citizenship lies. But while we're here, we have a work to do. And the work that we have to do is we need to go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation, baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. How do we do that? Without speaking, right? That's why today we're talking about our First Amendment right to free speech. We cannot proclaim the gospel without protecting our free speech rights, okay? So we're going to spend some time reading that. If I could have the um, First Amendment slide, please. So um, it says here, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or the right of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievance. So what does that mean? That's a lot of information, and that's just the First Amendment, okay? That's a lot of information. <laughs> I'm going to break that down, okay? So um, the no law establishing a religion, that's essentially what's commonly known as separation of church and state, okay? We're going to talk about that next week. The next part, prohibiting the free exercise thereof, that means free exercise of religion, we're going to talk about that next week also. And so next week, that's when we're going to talk about all these COVID restrictions and how the government is telling our church when to open and in what capacity we can open. That's when we're going to get into the free exercise of religion. And just a sneak preview, Governor Inslee does not tell God's people how to worship King Jesus. Okay. And so if the only thing you remember is that, remember that. Okay. And so, and so the next part the next part is the prohibiting the free speech, and that's what we're going to be talking about today. We're going to be talking about free speech. But before we move on to free speech, I just, oh, not yet, please, sorry. <laughs> but before we move on to free speech, I just want to talk about um, the peaceably to, uh, to assemble. That's obviously relevant right now because of everything that's going on. Um, the peaceably to assemble, what that means is it's our... Um, right to peacefully protest. And that absolutely is a constitutionally protected right. But that right is not without limitations, okay? So the right to peacefully protest has pretty much two two regulations. Number one is it, it you cannot obstruct vehicular or pedestrian traffic. If if you if you are going to protest and you are going to obstruct vehicular or pedestrian traffic, you must first obtain a permit. Without the permit, if you're obstructing traffic, you're not protesting. You're breaking the law. Okay? And then the second aspect to it is it must be peaceful. So the rioting, the looting, the arson, the vandalism, that is not constitu- constitutionally protected peaceful protesting, that's lawlessness. And the fact that our, we have local governments not standing against that is just further evidence that lawlessness abounds in the time in which we currently live. And so now, so that's peaceful protesting, okay? Has to be peaceful, don't block traffic. So, so thank you, Andrew. And so now we're going to talk about free speech, okay? So it sounds pretty straightforward, doesn't it? It just says, Congress shall make no laws abridging, that means infringing, abridging upon free speech. Sounds super straightforward. It's not at all straightforward. It couldn't be farther from straightforward. Why is it not straightforward? Because uh, 
I, I can't really get into all of this. I don't have the time. But in 1903, there was a case that came down called Marbury versus Madison. And what that case did uh, is it established that the, that the Supreme Court has the authority to decide the constitutionality of the law. So in essence, a law isn't even really a valid law unless and until the court hears the law, reviews the law, and determines whether that law is constitutional or not. And so what's happened over the last 230 plus years of our country's birth and why we have this, which is only one area of law and only covering like 10 years, why we have that is because the courts keep reviewing cases and then the courts are deciding what the black letter law means, okay? So the black letter law, that is literally what is in here. That is literally what our founding forefathers wrote. So the black letter law is Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech. That's what the law literally means. So kind of like how, you know, you read the Bible and you take God's word for what his word is, but then other pastors might turn it into something else to fit, fit your sin needs. That's what the court's doing. <laughs> that's what, that's what the court is doing to our constitution. And so that's what we're going to have to talk about. So we're going to spend a lot of time talking about that. So bear with me. I'm going to go over a lot of information, but it's because the courts have really diluted the black letter law. Okay. Does that make sense for why we have to go through? this. Okay. So if you are arrested or fined or sued for publicly preaching the gospel, okay. If that happens to you, and then you raise a free speech defense, you say, wait a minute, you can't arrest me. I'm exercising my free speech rights. These are the questions the court is going to ask. The court is first going to say, well, wait a minute. Is your speech actually protected? Because not all speech is protected. So what we're going to talk about first is what speech is not protected. Um, if I could have the not protected slide, please. And so the speech that is not protected. So in the, what that means is you do not have a constitutional right to say these things. The speech that's not protected is inciting immediate violence. The courts have literally called that fighting words. And so like literally, if you say something and it's reasonably going to cause somebody to fight you, you can't say that. Okay. But there's a difference between advocacy and inciting. Okay. Advocacy is protected. Inciting is not. Advocacy is if I have a sign that says I hate Asian people and I stand on the sidewalk with that sign, that's advocacy. That indeed is constitutionally protected because I'm advocating for a position. I'm advocating my opinion. But if I go up to a particular Asian gal and I start screaming at her, cussing at her, calling her racial slurs, that's inciting. And so that's not constitutionally protected. Does that make sense? Okay. And so then the next thing that's not protected is obscenity, which I know it seems like what obscenity is not constitutionally protected. I see obscenity everywhere. How is the government regulating it at all? It differs state by state. So what Nevada might consider as obscene is not what, say, Utah considers as obscene. Okay. Next is defamation. Defamation is when you say something bad about somebody's character. Uh, truth is an ultimate defense to defamation. So if it's true, sorry, you can't sue them. But um, it's both libel and slander. So libel is what is written. Slander is what is spoken. That is not constitutionally protected. And then finally, harassment. Harassment is if you threaten somebody. Okay. So all of that initially at first blush seems good, right? It seems good. Like we shouldn't protect harassment. We shouldn't protect fighting words. We certainly shouldn't protect obscenity. But, and we'll get into this later when we start getting to the case law, what the courts do is the courts determine what the court deems are fighting words. And so you'll see is that strangely Christian speech seems to be what's considered fighting words, whereas other speech that 
we might consider fighting words are not prohibited. Does that make sense? And so even though these regulations initially seem like, yeah, we do need to have the government get involved in that, really what the government ends up doing is deciding what they put into that category. And if your speech falls into this category, it is not constitutionally protected. And who decides if it falls into that category? The government, the court specifically. Okay, so do you see where I'm going with this? If you did, we're not, if your eyes were not open to the fact that we're under religious attack as Christians, then I, I pray that they're open now because it's, so, um, okay, so the second question, so remember, say you're arrested and uh, for preaching the gospel in public and you say, no, I have a First Amendment speech right, it doesn't fall into any of those categories, the next question is going to be, where did you say this speech? The literal place that you say it matters because uh, free speech is not protected everywhere. So there's public versus private, Okay. Private's obvious. It's like your workplace or um, your home. And then uh, you do not have free speech rights in the private sector. So your employer can indeed regulate your speech. Your employer cannot discriminate um, based on your religion, but we'll get into that on the uh, third week. And you ha- you can freely exercise, but we'll get into that in, in the second week. So just as it pertains to free speech, you have no free speech rights in the private forum, okay? So next, we've got public, okay? So in the public forum, that seems easy enough. Okay, great. So I have free speech rights in the public forum. As long as it's not any of these four things and I'm in public, then I get to say what I want to say, right? Wrong. Why is that wrong? Because the government has created three different types of public. And so this is going to be really like, what are you talking about? But we have to talk about the three different types of public because the your, the, the, the extent at which your speech is protected depends on which public forum you're in. Does that make sense? Okay, so we'll start with the least amount of protection to the most. So if I could get the um, non-public forum, please. So the non-public forum is a public place, but the government has designated it for a specific purpose. And so because the government has designated it for a specific purpose, you have no First Amendment free speech rights there. And so the example is the courthouse. So what is the purpose of the courthouse? The purpose of the courthouse is to hear court hearings. And so you can't go there and share your religious beliefs or your political beliefs, okay? Because it's even though it's public, it's considered non-public. Does that make sense? Okay. So then the next thing is... Um, if I could get the, uh, designated, please. So the designated public forum, um, this is the most common example would be like at a university. So a university is a public, public place, the public forum, but it's designated public in the sense that the, the, the government is allowed to say, um, say there's a, say there's a student union meeting center, the school is allowed to say only students can use this. Okay, that's totally acceptable. They, they can discriminate in the sense of you can only use this if you're a student here. What they can't do is they can't say, oh, and you can only use it if you're going to espouse feminist rhetoric, but if you're going to preach a biblical gender worldview, you can't come here. That they cannot do. Like... But what's happening, good, except what's happening in universities now, is universities are creating what's called a safe space. And so the presumption is supposed to be that the designated public forum has constitutionally protected rights, okay? But what has happened now is universities are creating special places and saying, no, 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 this is where you can exercise your free speech rights, but everybody everywhere else is a safe place, so other students are safe from having to hear your hateful, offensive speech. 
And so it's the opposites that's happening. And these are the people who are graduating and then they're going to become our leaders. Then they're going to enter into our government thinking, well, wait a minute, I'm supposed to be protected to having to hear your hate speech when the hate speech is just Christ crucified for the forgiveness of sins. And so... Did you see how that that's going to, it's just going to get worse. The, the government's hand is just going to get heavier because what we're teaching that next generation is, well, no, you shouldn't have to listen to what they say because you disagree with it. Okay. But you do have a constitutionally protected right to free speech in that designated public forum. So the final thing where we have the most liberty is in the quintessential public forum. So I will say this. Um, can I get the quintessential um, slide, please? So I will say this. No matter where you are, the government can always regulate time, place, and manner. Always. And so even in the quintessential, the quintessential is pretty much where you expect public discourse to occur. So a public park, a sidewalk. Does that make sense? Um, and so one would think, okay, great. I'm on the sidewalk. I can preach the gospel. I'm on a sidewalk. It's a public place. It's free speech. But the government can protect can regulate time, place, and manner. So what that means, regulating time. Say I'm going to evangelize out in public. The government can say you have to be done by 10 o'clock. That's regulating time. Regulating place, the government can say you can stay on the sidewalk, but you can't go out into the street. Regulating manner is you need to keep your volume below a certain decimal. You can't use a megaphone without obtaining a permit. And again, that makes sense, right? Like, I don't want my neighbor at 2 o'clock in the morning on a megaphone on the sidewalk. So that makes sense. But when you actually see how the courts are interpreting these cases, then, and who, and the people that, that most, the majority of the people who hold positions in the courts now don't uphold the Constitution. So what you're seeing is they're using time, place, and manner to restrict certain speech and not others. And so an example, and there were so many cases like this, where a street preacher will be denied a permit to have a megaphone, and then he'll use the megaphone anyways, because he's on the streets of like New Orleans or Vegas or something where there's a lot of noise. And so he'll use a megaphone anyways, and then he'll be arrested. Technically, the violation is using a megaphone without a permit. But what the effect of that is, you're silencing a street preacher. And I was looking up all the cases and I couldn't find one. And so like, you know, I, maybe it exists, but I couldn't find one where that was done against somebody who was, you know, espousing feminist values or somebody who was preaching Islam. It only happened to people who were preaching the gospel. And so this time, place, and manner is, again, just another mechanism that the government is using to try and silence us. And so, um, okay, so the two questions will be, is your speech protected? And where did you say that speech? Okay, so we're going to talk about the quintessential public forum. This is the place in which we have the most protection. So see again how what I was talking about earlier, where the black letter law is Congress shall not abridge upon the free speech, right? But then the courts have now turned it into, so if I read that, I think, great, Congress can't pass laws that inhibit my, that restrict my speech. But look at how the courts have turned into it. Now it's, well, wait a minute, Congress can't restrict my speech, okay, unless it falls into one of these four categories. Oh, and only I can say it if I'm in this, on this sidewalk. So do you see how our free speech has been grossly infringed upon? And so we're going to talk about this public forum and talk about how cases are interpreting that and what uh, what that looks like, okay? So who here remembers in 1984 the flag-burning incident outside the Republican National Convention? Yeah, okay, so... That cre- 
So that created um, a lot of controversy. The nation, I mean, I was three, but I studied it when I was in law school and my husband told me about it. And so, and so I was, but I do, but, and so I do know that it caused a lot of controversy and the nation was enraged because what happened is this guy named Johnson. So it was during the Reagan administration and the Republican National Convention was in Texas. And this guy named Johnson disagreed with Reagan's policies. And so he went outside the convention and he set the American flag on fire. And so there were two questions that arose from that. Number one is conduct speech. Because he didn't say anything. He, he burned the flag. And so is conduct speech? And if it is speech, is it constitutionally protected speech? And the court answered in the affirmative on both. So the court said, well... What he was doing was inherently expressive. So now that's the new term used for is your conduct speech? Is it inherently expressive? So in other words, it's clear the message he's conveying by burning the American flag, okay? And so the speech was protected. Or, I mean, it's, so it's considered speech. And then the court found that it was protected. And I'm going to read exactly what the court's ruling was. Um, if I could have the Texas slide, please. So the court's ruling, and so is, if there is a bedrock principle underlying the First Amendment, it is that the government may not prohibit the expression of an idea simply because society finds the idea itself offensive or disagreeable. So even if you're offended by the speech, he has a constitutional right to say it, okay? And so that's what we call in the law the right to be repugnant. There are a lot of cases involving free speech, and a lot of times it involves like really, really horrible things that people have said. Why do we defend the right to be repugnant? Why? Why do we defend that? Why, why do we want people to be able to say, say offensive, hateful things? Because we cannot allow the government to decide what is offensive. We cannot give the government that authority. In my lifetime, we have gone from... There are two genders, so now there's what, I don't know, 70? And we've gone from, hey, you look like a girl, I'm gonna call you she, to, oh, this person got fired for not using the proper gender pronoun, okay? That's just happened in my lifetime. And so society is always changing and always shifting and the government is always changing. But you know what doesn't change? What doesn't change is our biblical world view. And what doesn't change is God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. So we adhere to our biblical worldview regardless of if other people are going to be offended by it, okay? And just... Accept it now, Christian. The world will be offended when you preach the gospel. You preach the gospel with love, with that gentle, meek, quiet spirit, but you accept that they are going to be offended by it because the cross is an offense. Listen to that Billy Graham sermon if you haven't already. The cross is an offense. They're going to be mad. So we need to defend our right to be able to say it and hold on to that Texas ruling. That's an old case. The incident happened in 84, but the court ruled on it in 89. It's an old case, but it's still good law. By good law means this has not been overturned. So this is still the law of the land. So the law of the land is supposed to be just because you're offended by it doesn't mean I have to stop saying it. But we're going to see how that applies to Christian speech. To be clear, there isn't a difference between Christian, there isn't a difference in the law between Christian speech and non-Christian speech, but we're going to see how the courts are interpreting it differently, okay, and applying it differently. So in this case, um, there was a street preacher who was on campus. I can't remember where, but he was on campus. And so he was preaching against sin and it's a college campus. So he was preaching against sexual immorality, drunkenness, things of that sort. Well, the situation got out of hand. 
The crowd was so mad at him. They were cussing at him. They were yelling at him. They were throwing apple cores at him. I don't know why they had a bunch of apple cores, but they were throwing that at him. And yeah, weird. And so then uh, he, well, so then a woman in the crowd identified herself as a Christian lesbian. And so then he started mocking the crowd and he said some uh, derogatory comments about her and towards her. Ultimately, he was arrested, okay? And the court in that case said the arrest was valid, and the court's ruling on that case, if I could have the Gillis slide, please. The court's ruling on that case is Gillis's speech was rude, mocking, confrontational, and insulting. Many in the crowd were upset and angry with Gillis. So they upheld his they found his arrest to be valid because the crowd was angry at him. So remember in Texas, can I have the side-by-side slide, please? So remember in Texas, the standard was if your speech is offensive, you can't prohibit it. So if the speech is offensive to the veterans who were there while he was burning the American flag, if the speech was offensive to the families who lost loved ones who died in battle to defend the very flag that he was burning, the families who had loved ones who were still prisoners in POW camps in the Vietnam War, not much earlier before that, if it offends the patriots who were there angry of this flag burning the country they love, if it's offensive to them, sorry, he has a First Amendment right to say it. But if your speech is Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven and it offends the people who hear that, or if your speech is marriage is between a man and a woman and it offends them, or if the speech is Um, there are only two genders and it causes them to be angry, then you have to be silenced. So do you see how that works? And so now that case, the Gillis case was a third circuit case, which means the Supreme Court didn't take that case up. The, the, the Gillis petitioned to the Supreme Court and asked the Supreme Court to hear this, but the Supreme Court denied it. So right now this Gillis case is the law in the third circuit, which is very inconsistent with what the Supreme Court ruled, which is supposed to be the law in the entire country. Okay. So it, it, the, the government just has too much power and they're, they're ruling in a way that's silencing Christian speech. Let's be clear. It's evangelical conservative Christian speech is a speech that's being silenced. Okay. And so we need to, so what does this mean for us? Okay. What does this mean for us for the future of free speech rights? Well, we are living in an era of cancel culture and we're living in a time of mob rule and we're living in a time of, um, where it's not really going to be the government that silences us. It's going to be the corporations. It's, um, it's, so totalitarianism is when the government comes in with a weapon and says, comply or die, comply or go to prison. We don't have that here in America. What we have in America is soft totalitarianism, where the corporations that run everything are going to say, comply or we'll affect your livelihood. Comply or, 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 you know, we'll make things uncomfortable for you. And here as, as, as American Christians, man, we, we we're so afraid to get uncomfortable. We're so afraid to just, to just lose the privileges and the comforts that we have. And believe me, I'm there too. Like I like my comfortable life. (laughs) And so, but we got to step out of that, man. We've got to, we have to be willing to forsake that and say, it's not worth it. It's not worth it. And so we're going to really quickly talk about um, the future of free speech. Okay. So we are in an era of social media, um, Social media is private. It's that Twitter's owned by privately, Facebook, YouTube, they're all owned privately. But how does that, remember earlier when we were talking about the three different forums, the public forums? And so remember, your free speech is only protected if you're in that public forum, right? So where does that leave social media? Because it's a private forum, but it's 
used to disperse information to the public. I mean, gone are the days of going to the city gates to engage in political discourse. All political discourse happens through social media now. So I contend my position, my argument, if I've ever given the privilege of, on, of arguing before the Supreme Court, I would say social media is a designated public forum. You have opened the door, Twitter, to public Political and religious discourse, all information comes through social media. You are a public forum. Our free speech rights are protected. The court disagrees with me, though. So we're going to talk about that, okay? So the first thing that we're going to talk about is, so PragerU versus Google, okay? So PragerU is, um, you don't have to put the slide up yet, Pastor. So PragerU is, um, it's, it's not a university. It's a nonprofit organization. And what they do is they have a mission to um, share conservative viewpoints, particularly on social media. Everybody knows what YouTube is, okay? So Google is the parent company to YouTube. What YouTube did is they um, restricted PragerU's um, videos. And by restricting it, it meant that viewers couldn't watch the PragerU videos. And they also demonetized PragerU, which meant that third parties couldn't advertise through the PragerU um, videos. And so, and that that's how PragerU makes money, right? And so PragerU sued YouTube, actually Google, the parent company, but PragerU sued and said, look, yes, you are privately owned, but this is a public forum. The same argument that I just made, okay? PragerU made that argument. And the Ninth Circuit, so every, almost every un unconstitutional ruling has come out of the Ninth Circuit, okay? So not surprisingly, the Ninth Circuit ruled against PragerU and said, no, no, no. YouTube is private. YouTube can censor whoever you want, whoever they want. So right now, in the Ninth Circuit, which is where we live, the Ninth Circuit, YouTube has authority to censor us. And YouTube has authority to restrict our speech. YouTube has authority to flag our sermons as restricted, okay, here in the Ninth Circuit. But let's compare that with another case. This is out of the Second Circuit. And this is Knights versus Trump, okay? So Donald Trump has a Twitter account, and um, the Twitter account, the Twitter account is private in the sense that, you know, Twitter is a private organization. But what happened is, so some, some people who belong to this organization called Knights of Columbia University, they had um, commented on Trump's Twitter and talked and criticized his policy, criticized him, all kinds of stuff, right? And so Trump blocked them. And so the people of Knights sued Trump and said, wait a minute, this is a public forum. You cannot block us. We have a constitutionally protected right to free speech in this public forum. So basically the exact same argument that PragerU made, right? The court in Knights ruled in favor of Knights and said, yeah, Twitter is indeed a public forum. Yes, you're private, but you're being used to disperse public information. And so you're considered a designated public forum. Remember when we covered that? You're considered a designated public forum. So Trump wasn't allowed to block them. And so if you're in the Second Circuit, your First Amendment free speech rights are protected on social media. If you're in the Ninth Circuit, they're not, essentially, is where we are now. So what's going to happen or what needs to happen so is the Supreme Court needs to take these cases up. The Supreme Court will take a case for two reasons, essentially. One is if the case is of constitutional magnitude, that they just have to make a ruling on it. Um, and then the other is if the circuit courts differ on their rulings, because that's not right. We can't, we can't have people in Texas living under a different standard than people in Washington. And so the Supreme Court should take this case. I don't know if it will, but it should take this case. And, and, and the social media needs to be deemed a designated public area. Okay, it does. And the only way for us to be able to ensure our free, free speech amendment rights is if it is considered a designated public forum. So in the meantime... 
Social media is going to continue to attempt to silence us. And the soft totalitarianism is just going to continue to rise. And so we as Christians need to be more bold than we have ever been here in America. And we need to pray for boldness. I, the, the strongest weapon that we have is praying. We need to pray for that boldness. We need to pray for that courage. We need to pray that the Lord puts his people in place. And um, we need to know what our rights are. They cannot silence us just because they hate what we say. They cannot silence us just because they're offended by what we say. And so we need to stand firm on that and boldly proclaim it in the name of Jesus and not be afraid to step out of our comfort. Um, I guess that's it. Amen. <laughs> okay. <laughs>